Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And my voice went really high. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> a little high, like it didn't, it didn't crack. It, it, it didn't crack. But you it just went, sounded really excited to do the really, show. It's one of those things like sometimes when I'm driving, I'm thinking about driving instead of just driving. That time I was thinking about how I do the intro. Screw it up. <laughs> totally. Um, we're track walking, and this is how we do intro sometimes. Deal sometimes. with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we, we made a joke. Uh, our last topic episode um, was on the minimalism, essentialism, and minimum viable product. And we made a joke after we stopped recording about that, uh, that our motto here at track walking should be minimum viable product because what we produce because the the way that not in the topics necessarily, but more in like the setup and like all that we really do it to minimize the amount of time we have to do to the production and editing and uploading, like all that stuff. We really minimize that because if we had to do really any more than we do, I don't think we'd still be a show. Absolutely. I agree. So uh, we do the least that we have to do to do the thing that we do in the way that we do it. It's a lot of doo-doos. Dooby-dooby-doo. So I want to talk about success and something that I know very little about, so this should be interesting. <laughs> Seth's uh, childhood uh, disappointment in sports is really coming out right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, that's a deep cut. If you don't know that, you should uh, should go back and listen. Seth has talked about <laughs> Was it track and field and football, right? Uh, I ran cross country, cross but also, country. I mean, we can talk about me striking out in in t-ball um yeah there's like every sport that i played like i can tell you a story about like how how old were you when you were playing t-ball though uh whatever it is eight nine ten years old so we're talking over 35 years ago yeah yeah like 40 years ago and that's a memory you pulled out in a moment (laughs) deep scars yeah (laughs) (laughs) like when when you know experiences when you know that everybody on both teams and every parent involved just watched you do that and they all felt bad for you. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't go away. It's... Ever. And you let that define <laughs> in some part who you are today. <laughs> it's hard not to. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 part of me and will always be part of me. <laughs> So let's talk about uh, that. That's probably a barrier to my success. Okay. Let's talk about. <laughs> let's change yeah. the subject to you, Scott. Oh God. Um, <laughs> yeah. So roadblocks to success is what I wanted to um, to talk about, and I think less on what success is. Uh, we've touched on that a few different places and times, and how we define success how we can measure that, what that looks like to us versus other people, things like that. But tonight, however you define success, um, things that will keep you 
away from it, things that will slow you down, derail you, uh, send you in a different direction, send you backwards maybe, but just all of those things that will and can get in the way. So first one is perfectionism. And okay, perfectionism is often talked about as a virtue that I'm a perfectionist, but it's one of those like backhanded ones that like, what's your greatest weakness? Well, it's really that I'm a perfectionist. I like to, I really want everything just to be the best that it possibly can be. And it's, you say that as a bad thing, but really in our society, perfectionism is highly valued because it is a trait that you can acquire that allows you hyper-focus and the ability to not stop until something is perfect, which if you've listened to the show at all, is never going to happen. <laughs> but, yeah, it feels... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just the idea behind perfectionism and, and people saying that they are a perfectionist feels so so disingenuous. Like, it, I, I think it's it more indicates that you know you you aren't happy with the results you achieve more than i'm just chasing this to perfection um because the more you know about the world and the more the the more that you actually see things that are good and well done the more i think you realize you aren't really chasing perfection you're just chasing something that you're happy with which mm. you never really get to anyway. Um, I very seldom do anything that I'm actually happy with, no matter how hard I chase it. That's deep. Um, That's deep. Like, <laughs> so <laughs> rather than chase, like you're not chasing perfectionism, which is really, or you are, you don't, you're not, but <laughs> this is getting convoluted but you are chasing what you perceive other people to see as perfect which ultimately is just something that you're trying that you would be happy with that you would be pleased yeah. with yeah when somebody tells me like i've had people tell me i'm a perfectionist and what i realize is that what you're really telling me is i'm unhappy with what i do and i'm probably going to obsess about what i do because i'm unhappy with it just you know so you know put me in that box so that when i'm obsessing and being unhappy i i've defined it in a way that doesn't make me seem like more mentally ill than it makes me seem um and and it does help me put people in a box when they tell me that you know like i know that about you you're gonna chase these little details until it drives you insane cool got it and i think the reason why perfectionism can get in the way of succeeding is that you'll never let it be something to do something with it. And I think the classic example is somebody building a car that they want to take on track, but you and all your friends know it will never see the track 
because it's never going to be done. It's this person who's constantly saying, yeah, I want to get to the track. I just, I just need to get these coilovers. I just need to get these bushings. And yeah, I, I really want to get the, the supercharger on, or I, you know, I really want to get these uh, new wheels that are on the way. It's always something. It's always so you like, think it's not there to be able to do the thing. So you think perfectionists are self-sabotaging themselves? Yes, and I think it's intentional. I think it's a defense mechanism, ultimately, is being able to say, I'm chasing perfection. It's hard to, it's really hard to look at that and say that's a bad thing. That's true, because we accept it in society. Like, oh, he's obsessed and trying to be a perfectionist and trying to make it good, and that's, that's a good quality. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, but yes, I think it's largely accepted like that. But I think ultimately it's a way of being able to just not do a thing or to really put yourself out there is because you're always saying that you're chasing this thing, but you're never taking that project car to the track. You're never getting out and trying. Um what was the uh, the old quote? We're not we're not afraid of our weaknesses. We're afraid of our greatness. And I totally butchered that quote. But we're afraid of what we could accomplish. Yeah, and facing the fact that we won't. Like that's I think the right. the the part of that is that you would rather achieve nothing than than not achieve something you set out to do. I knew a uh, professor, theology professor, and wonderful man, and he only wrote one book that took him, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I want to say it took him over 30 years to publish, and it's not that big of a book because he constantly was tweaking words ideas moving things around but then you know after five years or so the entire book really kind of needed an overhaul because five years would have gone gone past and things would have have changed you have learned you know you could add a section oh this section doesn't make sense anymore take it out and you could always string it along now to his credit he did publish it eventually but it took a very long time to get there so but you don't very very few people achieve like being a a great author with one book right because it's a process of writing and publishing and writing and publishing and, and each thing gets better and it's producing a body of work and so in the process of saying this book must be perfect he did take away the opportunity to become a great author through producing a library of works mm. So Boy, look at you dropping the knowledge tonight. I'm just, I'm just saying, just saying. All right. So that's perfectionism. Okay. I think another thing that will be a hindrance in succeeding. Um, here we talk a lot about seeking out experts or coaches or people farther down the path than you are to use them to 
help infuse you with knowledge or perspective or help you kind of probe yourself and figuring out what the thing is that you want or need to do next. But I think a roadblock to success is seeking out that expert, seeking out that data or that perspective from somebody who can't relate to where you are right now. So this would be somebody who's been driving for so long, they don't remember what it was like to be at the track for their first weekend Hmm. and how overwhelming that experience can be for so many people. Yeah. So many times we will um, just be around paddock and something and somebody walks up to us and they're driving for the first time and they're like, how do I get to the track? And like, <laughs> that's a totally reasonable, justified question. Right. And it's nerve wracking because you came like deciding to do it and buying the ticket was the first thing. Huge hurdle packing the car, getting in the car, going to this thing where you might not know anybody or you might just know the one person, but they're not there and you can't find them at the moment. And it's like, I've got this thing to do that I've never done before with all these rules that I just kind of heard in a meeting and I don't know where to go. (laughs) And like, do I need to have my helmet on before I go? Um, Do like, do I torque my wheels beforehand or afterhand i mean i didn't bring a torque like there's all these things about your first weekend um you know how do i fill up with gas uh where's food where is this meeting that i'm supposed to be at in five minutes but when you're talking with an expert or an instructor or um you know it's somebody who's been around and they don't remember that they're going to look at you like you're stupid. It's like, dude, it's, it's literally right there. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) And ultimately, ultimately you're, you're trying to get advice from somebody who doesn't have empathy for where you are. (laughs) This is true. And won't understand the questions and where they're really rooted. Like you're not just asking where grit is. Because you don't even know the term for grid. You're asking how you get to the track. What you're really asking is, I'm really nervous. I'm new here. Could you please tell me it's going to be okay and help me out right now? Like that's really what some people are asking. But this expert's going to look at it like a fact. It's like, dude, it's right over there. You just go there and you'll be fine. End of conversation. So, toward the serious part of my autocross career, and when I was starting to to track and do time trial, um, I bought uh, an EF Civic from a, a gentleman, older gentleman up in Dallas. And the person who brokered that deal and who I met through this was uh, David Whitener, who's got a jacket full or a, a closet full of of autocross jackets. Um, he builds built shocks for a long time. Adam talks about having a set of Whitener shocks. Really, really smart guy. Um, and I remember talking to him about teaching and he said, I don't teach beginners. And I, at the time I was deep into, you know, like, that's what I did. I taught beginners. And I thought that was like a really arrogant 
thing to do like took a long for a long time i thought that was just kind of a really arrogant way to look at the world like like my skill set's so high it's only relevant to people that are very serious and i realize now and i realize it took me a while to realize but it's just sort of he was so far down the rabbit hole of really really learning to drive well that if he got in the car with someone who was just learning to drive his answer would be like well you have to fix everything and so sure. once you've fixed like two-thirds of this then we can like we can have a conversation but we can't even start to have a conversation at this point so we basically just wasted each other's time and i now think that there's a chance that that was just like him being very self-aware and um i i count as one of my great accomplishments the point that the or the fact that he that i got to the point as a driver where he was like here let me show you something i was like oh my god <laughs> i'm i'm now good enough that that i've fixed enough fundamental mistakes that he sees something that just like something that that needs to be taught and that if he teaches me this one thing then i can make a big step forward and for me he took me out on uh out on a track um msr crescent mm -hmm. and the track that's got quite a bit of of elevation and really good sight lines mm -hmm. and he had me do laps and he's like where are you looking and i'm like oh, down there and he goes cool you should be looking across the track right now he said looking 100 feet in front of the car has no relevance to you right now because you're going, you know, down a hill. You'll you'll need to worry about that when you get toward the braking zone. Right now, look off to your left. Because you can see half of the track off to your left. And you can see what other people are doing. You can see if anybody has spun out over there. You can kind of get a feel for what's happening. He said, look over there, take in the whole track, then bring your vision back to what you're going to need to be, you know, doing. And And he taught me to look at an entire race course in a way that I'd never done before. Like I had the idea of eyes up and looking ahead, but there's a whole holistic thing that I could look at. And I wasn't worth being taught that until I could drive well enough that I wasn't panicking under braking and doing right. all of those things. Um, so there were two experiences that I've had that by intention and by, I guess, just how I'm wired have helped me to be the coach with the focus that I I have now. One is when I was a ski coach. Um, I oftentimes, most of our clients were families. Um, some were pretty good skiers and like did it, you know, with a focused way, but like they weren't professionals, you know, avid weekend warriors, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, definitely had some tips for them. You know, they definitely wanted to get better, but at the end of the day, like this was vacation for them. They wanted to get better, yeah. but like they're going to go have some margaritas after this and they're going to go enjoy Florida. And that was going to be that. Um, and of course those were the parents and then we'd have the kids and some of the kids would just be starting out or would still be like definitely in the like having a blast phase. So like 
you want to talk about fundamentals. We're talking about like, here's how to get up on a ski, like not even like how to turn, like here's how you even do the thing that we'll be able to build on later. And that would be in the same day. But earlier that morning, before anybody showed up, we would have a pro and that would be, you know, somebody like a friend of mine or something like that. It's like, Hey, if you show up at this time, Right after we fuel up the boats, I'll throw you on. We'll get a couple passes in before we need to actually like go to work. And we'll just call it even. Cool. And these were people who ski in world tournaments, who go for prize money. And it was the same coach, me, and others. And you'd have these three distinct mindsets going into this. Somebody who's really, you know, in in race car terms, we would say like really going for hundredths yeah. at a track. You'd have the person going for like tenths or maybe half a second. And then you had the kids who were like in one session could cut five seconds off their personal best because like that's that's where they're at. And in another arena of my life, a, a different professor when I was at, in my grad program was one of the theological giants. His name was Dr. Miliori. Literally wrote the book on systematic theology. Um, and he was getting close to retirement, but a common critique I heard from some of my fellow classmates is that it's just the way he explains it is too simple. It's too simplistic. You know, these other writers or philosophers or theologians, they go into it a whole lot deeper. And what I found in that is that they were equating difficulty and understanding with depth of meaning. And I just right. put that sentence together and I'm really proud of it. So I'm going to say it again. But they were, they were confusing difficulty for understanding for depth of meaning. And what I really appreciated about Dr. Miliori is that he, this is such a weird, like, tiny circle. Like, nobody, if anybody knows Dr. Miliori and who I'm talking about, like, please message me. I want to see that tiny, like, little weird pairing or circle that I'm in. But he was... I felt he was the next step beyond. He understood the depth of things, but he was able to put it in simple under simple to understand language that people who are just getting into the field and people who have been doing it for 40 years both could sit with and be like, huh, and get different things from. And like that's the kind of coach I want to be who never gets out of touch with your people on their first day, but can put heavy, thick, deep, hard-to-understand things in a very simple-to-understand way so that we can get on and do the thing. Does that make sense? It does. I'm trying to think about where in... I, I can actually sort of imagine in theology where those some of those things are, where you make a statement that on its surface is like, like, yeah, I get that. 
but somebody who's been studying it for 30 years is like, dude, there's like 35 layers to getting that. Yeah. Um, but I don't really know where that is in driving. Um, where where you have a thing that's sort of like okay, you so need to learn this. And they're like, Yeah, I'll go do this. Well, the the famous example that we that we constantly use that sounds really big and like kind of smart is look ahead, think ahead. All oh, that yeah, kind of that's stuff. True. And that's not that sounds good. That's completely useless for most people. Yeah, eyes up. Yeah, eyes up. Just need to be looking and thinking farther ahead. That's it. Just become, yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, uh, have uh, mutant powers to be able to uh, to do the thing. That's about as useful. All right, so roadblocks to success. We've got perfectionism and seeking out experts who can't relate to where you are now. Um, the next one is something that is, I think, heavily lauded as a virtue is the daily grind. You've got to be working on it every day. If you're in high school sports, especially varsity sports, you probably know this deeply is you have to be doing it every day and not just doing it. You've got to be putting in 110% because that's possible somehow. And you've got to be doing the extra practices and the extra workouts to get ahead, to get that advantage every single day. And I think that is truly a roadblock to um, long-term success because that daily grind, um, I think the easy thing for everybody to look at and see is burnout. If you do that thing every day without ceasing you will get burned out. You will get injured. You will just not even recognize where you are or what you're doing at some point. But I think the other thing that we may not realize is that doing that every day and grinding, like my kid loves to say about uh, Roblox. Grinding. Yeah, Dad, I'm going to get up that. tomorrow. I'm going to grind on <laughs> Roblox. <laughs> like, Go for it, man. I hope you have fun. Um, <laughs> is um, get you get bored. You don't get burned out. You just get bored with the thing because that's all you do. Yeah. And so your focus and your attention can move elsewhere just because you need something novel because the thing that you loved and that you really wanted to put all this time and effort into, like but you didn't want it to become everything. Like we're not good at that as humans. So to, to bring it back, I have a question about that, to bring it back to your high school sports thing. Um, and my sports experience, mm-hmm. we, when I played junior high basketball and going into high school basketball, which I didn't play because junior high basketball was plenty for me. Um, I had friends who, would like stay after practice and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And they loved it. Like if you would let them shoot until 10 o'clock at night, they would shoot every night for four hours and they would just shoot. And nobody was making them do it. They were giving them the opportunity to do it. And if you made them go home, they'd turn on the light outside and they'd shoot at their, their hoop outside. Hmm. 
And for me, if, you know, if I went and missed like 40 shots in a row and I was like, cool, that's about as much as I want to do today. <laughs> sure. Um, and, and there was always a part of me that goes, if I somehow loved this enough, if I was good enough at this to love this enough to do it more, I would even be better at it. But I'm not good enough to enjoy doing it so that I can practice at it so I can get better. Or want it bad enough to chew through the hardship. Right. Yeah, and that's what everybody said. Well, like if you wanted enough, you would you would do this enough. And I was like, Yeah, but I don't like I don't want to do this. It's not fun. Like being bad at something continually for hours and hours and months and months is not my idea of a good time. Yeah. Kind of kind of beats you down. Yeah. Yeah. And I you know, this this whole idea of the daily grind or like no days off, that's another one. Um, yeah, no is, zero days. Yeah, zero days. As like you, you need fresh perspective. You need days off. You need to see things from a different point of view, from a different lens, however you want to say it. Like there's a reason why it's good to have seasons in your life. You know, the people who live in the South and can go race carring every week of the year. That seems oppressive to me. <laughs> like, so when do you take time to develop the car? You know, when do you just take time off to go travel with the family and like do something else to like, like when, when do you have time? And like the seasons, especially freaking in Michigan right now, like you, I could not take the race car outside without, severe modifications <laughs> to making it uh, a car that could do that sort of thing. You could use it to plow all but about two and a half inches of snow off your driveway. I really do want a lifted Miata. Those look like silly fun to me, but I don't want, like I don't want another car right now. <laughs> Is it one of those things where you want to experience a lifted Miata or do That's, you want to own okay. a lifted Miata? That's fair. I would love to borrow somebody's lifted Miata for, for a weekend. That would be great. If any of our listeners, if you have a lifted Miata, Scott, holler at your boy. You. Yeah, <laughs> take it off some sweet yumps. Um, all right. Next one is roadblock. Would be thinking success is linear. Thinking that it's just you go from here to there, and every step gets you a step closer. And that is not the case, Seth. It is circular. You know, you might, yeah. you know, if you start like on, if you look at a piece of paper and you say, okay, the center is success and you put like a little dot, you're going to start at a corner and you're going to kind of work clockwise or counterclockwise. And you're just going to keep like doing circles, slowly getting towards that middle but it's like that math equation, but probably never actually touching it. You just always get closer. Yeah, success is asymptotic would be another way to look at that. There you go. Um, It's jagged. Like if you want to think about like a graph, like you'll go up, you'll kind of plateau for a little bit, then you'll dip down, then you'll jump up a lot, then you'll 
kind of come right. back down. Like it's, it's every step you take is not going to feel like progress. And yeah. some steps you take, you will be taking a step backwards in performance. You know, the famous examples are like uh, it was Tiger in golf. And I'm sure there, there are some drivers we don't know about who like redid how they played the game so that they could be even better. But in redoing how they played the game, like they stopped being competitive at all so that they could get better. Well, that's, that's left foot breaking. Um, to go like left foot breaking is a, is a useful tool in a tremendous amount of driving. We don't use it all the time, but there are times when, when it really helps to be able to use your left foot, give the car a little bit of brake, change, change weight with it while you're still using the accelerator. Um, in the vast, I will say the vast majority of racing, there's someone who uses that tool, but the, process you go through to learn to left foot brake will definitely make you slower initially like you will be worse at driving while you're learning to left foot brake yes. than you were before you started but when you get good at left foot braking you'll be a little bit faster than you were when you started yes um hey, yeah you have to be for left foot braking to be really truly helpful you have to be a really elite level left foot breaker to make it more worthwhile than being a really good right foot breaker. Depending on context as well, because in in like rally, um, like even a moderate amount of skill left foot breaking is very, very useful. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, the slipperier the surface and the more you kind of have to do some other weird things, the more left foot breaking is useful. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I was yeah, I was thinking road racing. Yeah, thinking road racing. Yep. And and in road racing I think that's true, but you will you will see the guys at the elite level of road racing even if they don't use it all the time, the majority of them have it in their toolbox. Yes. Um and but god damn it does it make you slower when you're learning it. Like <laughs> it just Yeah, you have to uh, be able to dedicate the time and patience to work through that. Yeah, you're, you're I, I learned it in rallycross and autocross. And I remember just like knowing in autocross, like I could have been like multiple whole seconds faster if I didn't insist on spending the time to learn left foot braking. Um it was so frustrating, but I did I did create it as a tool that I could use and and have continued to use as a as a driver although very very seldom on track going fast. Yeah. Um so yeah, so success is not linear. Life isn't like it life doesn't work like that. <laughs> Anything you learn or want to get better at or just want to do and go through it will not be the same every step um next one is thinking that procrastination is a terrible thing oh i want to hear you justify this procrastination can be productive <laughs> seth hey, i want to i ooh, i like this one yeah um 
we oftentimes we think procrastination is what lazy people do. If you don't want to do something, you procrastinate. It's what I do, yeah. Now, I'm not saying it can't be lazy. (laughs) I'm not saying sometimes we do things to be lazy. But ultimately, I think a lot of procrastination uh, is not laziness. That procrastination, we use it to avoid negative emotions. Now, before I continue, think about me and my engine stuff. Okay. As a case study. <laughs> there are there are several things I did not want to do. Not because I didn't have time or the energy, but I didn't want to know because then I would feel bad for knowing. The amount of time it took you to take the head off your engine? Yes. <laughs> Amongst <laughs> other things, but yes. Ultimately, like we're we're not procrastinating. Like if you've got a test coming up, you don't procrastinate studying for it because you're lazy. You're procrastinating it because you are nervous about taking the test. And if you study for it, you will realize how much you or you feel like you will realize how much you don't know, and that feels bad. Again, we are not rational creatures, Seth. We are emotional ones. The the decisions that we make are largely, like wildly largely based on emotion. Procrastination is a way of avoiding negative emotions. So should we be sort of accepting that about ourselves or should we be trying to fix that? I think first is just knowing why you're doing it. Like so identifying being in- introspective? it. introspective? Yes. Okay. And like we talk about often, sometimes that means talking to somebody else because we can't see our nose to spider face. <laughs> is we need to be, Seth, I don't want to do this. Why do you think that is? <laughs> and Seth, you'll probably tell me in brutal honesty exactly why that is. That's who I am in your life, Scott. I appreciate it. Um, sometimes. Except the last podcast when I, I told you that <laughs> we were just going to go instead of me answering it. <laughs> yeah, um, that was fun. But I, yeah, I think it's ultimately just saying I am doing this not only to avoid negative emotions, but I'm procrastinating because I don't want to feel these things. Hmm. Why don't I want to feel these things? Is that anything I want to change? (laughs) Like there's, there's layers on layers on layers. And I mean, the answer might be, no, I don't want to change this. This system oddly works for me. We're getting out of it. What exactly what you want, you know, continue on, but procrastination can be productive it can give us that time because sometimes procrastination may be that we are tired and we are a little burnt out. So if you are on that no days off regiment and you just keep putting this thing off, that can be a sign 
that can be a symptom of something underlying it. That, man, I just keep pushing this off. Why Why am I doing this? Like, it's, it's a good time for a question. Procrastination also, procrastinators, sorry, procrastinators also are more creative than people who don't procrastinate and just get stuff done. Because in their procrastination, they almost have to invent and be creative <laughs> with what they do with their time. As you're describing, at least one of my kids are yeah. here. <laughs> I wondered <laughs> if I was going to ring one of those bells. Um, but yeah, that like the ideas that they come up with because their brain is trying to avoid this thing. So in doing so, they're expending an awful lot of effort in dreaming and thinking about new and cool and weird stuff but that that's not a bad thing that like a lot of ideas can come from daydreaming from looking out of a window in the middle of work Um, a lot of workplaces are (laughs) for productivity reasons but um, but I think also just they're encouraging people to put their phones down, like instead of stopping to work just to stare at your phone because that's still seen as being productive somehow, they are actually encouraging people, just look outside. Like go take a a lap around the office or like go get some water. Like just do something or do nothing. I was was actually going to ask if, how you thought about, you know, phones and the internet in general actually being counterproductive to that idea that that procrastination can help with creativity because if you're if you're taking away the thing that you should be doing and filling it up with something else like filling that bandwidth up with something you're really not most of our phone use is not creative. No. It's, consum- um, it's co- consumptive. It's consumptive. That's exactly the word that I was going to use. And so I wonder if if we have to adapt to the fact that that our procrastination time is is being is being directed into something else. Um, because that's personally like like if i'm not doing something like i'm not doing something i should be doing um i'm i'm like all right if i'm not going to do that i should do something else like if i'm not going to work on the car not going to work on the bikes i should at least clean the bathroom right because i at least i will have accomplished something sure because otherwise i won't do anything and i'm probably not going to sit around and be creative i'm i'm probably gonna you know do something useless on the internet instead so um but 15 years ago i would have been bored i would have been bored until i did something which is still what happens to me at my cottage um like Mm -hmm. like if i don't do the dishes at the cottage i'm just gonna sit there and i don't know like crochet or do something or do something i'm like ah whatever and i'll finally end up going and doing the dishes because like they have to be done and they're staring at me and I'm kind of bored. And so I'll go do that, but I don't need to do that at home where I have phones and the internet to distract me from the things that I should be doing. So 
Um, yeah, we, we could go off on a tangent, I think, about phones and distraction. But ultimately, like, let's not just talk about phones and apps as like this passive things. These are finely sharpened tools that those companies have developed and refined to capture and retain your attention for as long as possible. Right. For the purpose of commercial benefit for the company. Yeah, you are the product. Full stop. So. Hmm. Okay. Procrastinating. It's good. Yeah. Can be good. It can be good. Can be good. Can be. Yeah, I was going to say, you almost convinced me that your procrastination is beneficial, but I'm not all the way on board. Thanks. With you yet. Calling it a win. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so ultimately, as we kind of wrap this up, that you want to try to match your level of practice in a thing or being in it to your time away from the thing. Like there has to be some sort of balance. So, you know, we've largely accepted that we work five days a week and we take two days off. Um, whatever that is like working out, if you work out three days a week with one day in between and then two days on the end or something like that, maybe that's the routine you need to do, but you need to have an on and off or side quest or something else. It can't always be the thing all the time. So, what are your thoughts on the uh, the new modern uh, GLTC and track world of like you you got to be sim racing uh, to really have your skill set up? Got to be grinding at the sim racing. Well, I'm sim racing, so I've fell into that trap on some level, uh, and I started out doing it a lot more than I am now. Now, and part of that right now, that's because. I'm putting more time into my actual car. And again, since time is a finite resource, the more I play sim, the less time I have to work on my car. And like, I would like to get my car done so that I can drive it come summertime. So I started to play sim less so that I could work on the car more. Now, say the car were done, there would still need to be some some sort of balance like there would have to be days where i didn't get on the sim some days where i only did practice by myself some days where i did some racing but in a lower class in a car that i'm really familiar with and maybe some racing in a really fast car or a series i was totally unfamiliar with or something like that like different ways of bouncing around But then, you know, there's always the practice days right before a GLTC weekend at the track, too. Like, there's all, there's just the constant demand for more. You know, it's the, well, it's time to get an RV now, right? Because then we'll have a shower and a bathroom and like a really quiet place with an AC unit. And that, um, that's a performance enhancer, Seth. um, Oh, yeah, obviously. Because all the fast guys have RVs, so. Obviously. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, we're saying this all tongue-in-cheek. 
Um, but yeah, the, the demand for more uh, is, is always there. So, um, so just to briefly review the roadblocks to success we've talked about perfectionism, seeking out experts who can't relate to where you are, uh, the daily grind, the idea of no days off, thinking success is linear, the notion that procrastinating can be productive, and then um, trying to find uh, a balance, you know, knowing that you need to do other things in order to find success because success isn't always found in just doing the thing. You have to have to diversify that time and that energy. So, yeah. Yeah. My, my life feels like I've been swimming in all of those constantly and continually uh, forever with everything that I've tried to do. God, I just feel, feel like life has just beaten me down, Scott, and uh, a lack of success is an inevitability at this point. If you have advice for Seth, uh, send us a message. Um, what does Seth need to do to feel better about himself and uh, his apparent lack of success in childhood sports? Did his dad not hug him enough? Was his mom not supportive? Or was were his siblings just too damn mean? All of that. Good God. We'll, we'll leave that to you. <laughs> We're uh, at Track Walking Podcast. Track Walking Chats is a Facebook group. Uh, if you could share the episode, um, leave us a review and rate us and all that sort of stuff. It's all good. And it does help the podcast. And we like to be helped, which is, you know. Help me more, please. Help help Seth. We, we need help. So uh, for the two of us, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>